We're Anthem Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. For all the info you need, visit anthemforall.org and follow at Anthem Church Chicago. John chapter 2, if you have a Bible, please can you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. That's the text that we're going to be eventually um, spending time in. And I say eventually because we're going to make a couple of detours along the way, but you can open your Bibles so long to to John chapter 2. It's been about a year since we announced our name change from Church in the City, the name of this church for 14 or so years. And then uh, February 3rd last year, we announced our name change from Church in the City to, to Anthem Church. And that announcement came kind of at the end of the sermon. The announcement was made something like this. Our anthem cry is all of Jesus for everyone, and so our new name is Anthem Church. And with that name change came a new logo, the logo um, that's on the screen behind me. But why did we choose this logo? What was the what was the reason that we chose this one? What is it? What is it about this logo that we that we love? Just a couple of things. I want to. I've never had a chance to share this, but we love the the play on the letter A. I'm sure you can see that behind me. Uh, we love the simplicity of the logo, yet the strength that triangles communicate. I learned all about that from Charles and from Eric and the team uh, when when we were learning about logos. But the the simplicity yet the strength of that logo. I love how the, the larger triangle overshadows the smaller triangle, just like we are overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. I love how the smaller triangle is in the larger triangle, just like we, uh, those of us who've given our hearts to Jesus, are in Christ. I love how the smaller triangle is being transformed into the larger triangle, uh, just like we are being transformed, just like we're being transformed from me to me in Christ. And I love how the larger triangle is incomplete without the smaller triangle. And that to me speaks of community, speaks of the beautiful truth that we are called to be with and for one another. So there are many reasons why I absolutely love that particular logo. If you can go to the next slide, Bree. I want you to take a look at these three logos, and I want you to think about what they represent. It's not that hard, I promise you. It's simply a crown and a, and a book and a key. It's not cryptic in any way. Those three logos for me represent what it means for the follower of Jesus to live from heaven's perspective. And that's what we are speaking about over the, uh, uh, over the first three weeks of the new year, a series which Aiden started last Sunday called Refocus. Uh, how do we live from heaven's perspective? The, the, the crown speaks to us in order for us to live from heaven's perspective, it means to live under the reign and rule of Jesus. The, the book or the word of God, to live from heaven's perspective, we need to be those who live according to God's will and God's way. We need to be people who are doing what God has called us to do, and that's what I'm going to be focusing on today. And then next Sunday, Matt is going to speak about the key to live from heaven's perspective means to live in the victory of Jesus. So I'm hoping that not just these, for these next three weeks, or starting last week and for, and for three weeks, but throughout this year, we would focus our attention on those three truths. To live under the reign and rule of Jesus, to live according to God's will and God's way, and to live in the victory of Jesus. Last year, we studied the book of Philippians, and towards the end of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, he makes two incredibly strong statements to the readers of that letter and to us as followers of Jesus. He says that we are to be people who stand firm in the Lord and to be those that rejoice in the Lord always. And you'll notice that that common phrasing, in the Lord. 
Time and time again, Paul is, is known throughout his writing to be emphasizing the reality of the follower of Jesus is a follower, is a person who is in the Lord. Stand firm and rejoice always despite the forever changing circumstances around us. And immediately, I'm sure, we ask the question, how? How, how could it be that we are, are those that stand firm in the Lord? And he tells us in the preceding verses, he says, when we remember our citizenship is in heaven. When we remember to live from heaven's perspective. And as I said, Paul, you know, to Paul, a Christian or a follower of Jesus is someone, quite simply, who is, who is in the Lord. And he, he emphasizes this truth over and over again in all his writings. Perhaps most common, or it's mostly emphasized in the book of Ephesians. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, God raised us, us being those who have put our faith in Jesus, us being those who, who, who have put our faith in, in Jesus' death on and resurrection from the, the, the cross. God has raised us up with Christ. Those of us who believe in Jesus are raised with Christ because at salvation we've been placed into the body of Jesus, into the person of Jesus. God raised us up with Christ and he seated us with him in heavenly realms. And so to Paul, a follower of Jesus is not just somebody who is in Christ. A follower of Jesus is somebody who lives from heaven's perspective, who lives from the reality of being seated in heavenly realms. Forgive me for using an illustration which I've used many times before, but when we talked on this last year, I, I, I shared the story of once when I was in business, I was upgraded from business class to first class on a trip from Mexico City to Johannesburg via London Heathrow. And uh, when I arrived at the podium, the, the, the person said to me, Mr. Sudworth, you'll be glad to know that we've seated you in first class. And the reality of where I had been seated, although I wasn't there yet, the reality of where I had been seated changed the way that I lived for a few hours anyway. You know, my, my, my head was held higher, my shoulders were back, I felt like the world was for me and not against me. I spoke with a fancy accent and, and, I, and I flashed my first class pass to anyone who, who would want to see and even to those who, who, who didn't. The, the point being, I was living from the perspective of being seated in first class. Just like the follower of Jesus is called to live from the perspective of being seated in heavenly realms without the obnoxiousness that comes with, with my particular example. We're called to live from heaven's perspective. And again, Paul says this over and over again. It'll come up on the screen behind me. But in Colossians chapter 3, uh, reading from the Passion Translation, in the first four verses, Paul summarizes this absolutely beautifully. Listen to this. Christ's resurrection is your resurrection too. This is why we are to yearn for all that is above. For that's where Christ sits, enthroned at the place of all power, honor, and authority. Yes, Feast on all the treasures of the heavenly realm and fill your thoughts with heavenly realities and not with the distractions of the natural realm. Your crucifixion with Christ has severed the tie to this life and now your true life, your true life is hidden away in God, in Christ. And as Christ himself is seen for who he really is, who you really are will be revealed for you are now one with him in his glory. Beautiful, beautiful 
passage of Scripture for us to think about and meditate on. So for, for, for us, for those of us who are followers in Jesus, we are called to live from heaven's perspective. But what I want to specifically focus in on today is the fact that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, more specifically, I want to ask and answer the question, how do we live according to God's will and, and God's way? How do we live according to God's will and God's way? And we're going to do that by reading and, and speaking from this passage in John chapter 2. First 10 verses. John chapter 2. Let's read together, reading from verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. We're not going to have a chance to kind of comment on those last few verses specifically, but so let me just make a comment about them real quick. Do you notice how remarkable it is that it was Jesus who performed the miracle, but the bridegroom who gets the credit? And I want to say to everyone here, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus does the work on the cross, and you and I who put our faith in Jesus get the credit for the work that Jesus does. Verse 11 then tells us that what Jesus did here, listen to this, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Why was this the first miracle that Jesus performed? I mean, I, I think if you and I put ourselves in Jesus' shoes, if, if we were about to launch a, a miracle ministry, you and I certainly wouldn't choose this as our first, as our first miracle. I mean, we'd, we'd probably raise somebody from the dead, or, we, or we, we probably would get a lame person to walk, or, or maybe feed thousands using a few fish and dinner rolls, or something like that. But, but Jesus chooses this, this, this incredible uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, arbitrary miracle. You know, he's, he's saving the blushes of a, of, of a bridegroom and his social faux pas of running out of wine at a wedding. The bridegroom had one job to do at a wedding, and that was to provide wine for the three-day reception party. And he couldn't even do that. And yet Jesus steps in, and it seems like Jesus is stepping in on the back of what his mother asked him to do. Look at verse 3. They have no more wine. I love it. That's such a mother thing. That's such a mom thing to say. You know, we've all heard it before. Moms do it over and over again. You know, your bedroom is an absolute mess, or the dishwasher needs to be packed, or, you know, the kitchen needs to be cleaned. I mean, moms, moms are, are famous for making observations and then, and then expecting their children to pick up on the hints and actually do the job done and get the job done. They have a degree in stating the obvious. They, they really do. But I, I, I love Jesus' answer. I mean, Jesus' response is even better. It's a response, quite honestly, that I think needs to come with a little footnote, a little disclaimer. 
You, you know sometimes when you, when you watch TV and you see a commercial and someone is doing something ridiculous on the TV and then at the bottom there's a little footnote, do not attempt this at home. I mean, what Jesus is about to do, there should be a footnote, do not attempt this at home. You know? If, if a friend, if a roommate or a, or a mom or a spouse asks you to do something around the house, don't do what Jesus did in verse 4. Why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Don't try that at home. And if, you, if it's a mom or a, or a wife that has asked you to do it, don't start, the question, don't start your answer with the word woman as Jesus did. <laughs> just, just to put our mind at rest, that English translation from the original Greek doesn't reflect, it, 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 it does a bad job. This is not a disrespectful term that Jesus is, is using. But still, don't, don't, don't try it at home. I think the question we've got to ask ourselves, though, is, is what does Jesus mean when he says, my hour has not yet come? And, and three times at least in, the, in, in, in John's gospel, that phrase is used. And in every single instance, in addition to this one, it points to the reality, the, 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 the power, the beauty, the perfection, the, the, the amazing act of Jesus' sacrifice and, and his death and resurrection from the cross. But so much more than that, it points to something even greater. And, and this miracle of turning water into wine points to the, the consequences or the benefits or the, the incredible results of Jesus' death and resurrection from the cross. It points to Jesus' wedding day. It points to the day when, when Jesus, for once and for all, will be united with his bride, the people of God. It points to the day when Jesus is the bridegroom. And, and like this bridegroom at the wedding in Cana, he will be responsible. Jesus will be responsible for providing wine. But the wine that Jesus is going to provide is going to be the finest of wines. It's going to be the wine of God's presence. It's going to be wine, the wine of the Father's presence. And that wine is never going to run out. What I want to focus on, though, is verse 5, Mary's response to what Jesus has said. Look at verse 5. She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. How do we live from heaven's perspective? More specifically, how do we live according to God's will and God's way? There are many ways that I can answer that question. But the one that I feel like God wants us to focus on or to refocus on is simply this, to live from heaven's perspective means that we are a people who do whatever he tells us to do. Jesus tells the servants to, to go and to take six empty vats and to, and to fill them with water and then to draw, water, uh, uh, draw from that water and take it to the master of the banquet. I want you to think for a moment of, of what must have gone through the mind of the servant who's been told by Jesus to do this. I mean, there's no more wine at the wedding. The party is literally hanging on a thread. The success of the party is hanging on a thread. The bridegroom is embarrassed. The master of the banquet is probably spitting mad. And then the servant hears the instruction from Jesus. I mean, he must have been thinking, you, you, you want me to take a goblet of water and take it to the master of the banquet? That doesn't make sense. But doing whatever he tells you doesn't mean we do whatever he tells you when it makes sense. That's not obedience. That's not faith. That's simply agreeing with the facts and being pragmatic. And pragmatism is never the gateway into a life of the supernatural and seeing the kingdom of God released around us. Jesus is the only one who was able to turn water into wine. And Jesus is the only one who was able to perform any myriad of miracles. 
But the beauty and the splendor of Jesus, the grace and goodness of Jesus, is that he invites us to participate in the miracle. Faith and obedience to do what Jesus tells us to do, even when it doesn't make sense, is the gateway for us to stepping into a life where the kingdom of God is more on display and we begin to live a life of the supernatural. I'm sure most of us here in the room have heard of, uh, of the book, The Five Love Languages by, by Gary Chapman. I mean, it's a, it's a well-known book in Christian circles and also in non-Christian circles. And essentially, the premise of the book is, is real simple. The way we communicate love, the way we receive love, is different to the people around us. And if we aren't aware of this difference, the, 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 the communication or reception of love can be lost in, in, in translation. And Gary Chapman claims there are five primary love languages, uh, physical touch, gift giving, acts of service, quality time, and words of affirmation. And, and most of us here, most people here probably have one primary love language. There are a few little aliens floating around, like my wife, for example, who is fluent in all five love languages. That's, she, she claims she never has an, an absolute favorite. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that the Bible tells us that, that Jesus, that God has a love language. And that love language is obedience. John 14 says this, if you love me, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. A few verses later, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. In John 15, Jesus says, you show that you are my intimate friends when you show that you are my intimate friends when you obey all that I command you. And as, as, as followers of Jesus, let's be honest, we are very weary of that word obedience. It's kind of got like a bit of an icky feeling, but, but I, I, the, the context of the Word of God is obedience always flows from an intimate relationship with God. Because I grow in my knowledge of God, I love God. And because I love God, I trust God. And because I trust God, I'm willing to obey God. Or said another way, living, loving Jesus empowers us to obey God's Word. I remember so clearly 16 years ago, Debs and I sitting around about this time of year, in fact, sitting in a coffee shop in Los Angeles, uh, uh, thinking through, dreaming about starting church in the city, which we would start later in, 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 the, in the May of that year. And we were chatting to our friend who was, le- who was leading a sizable church in Los Angeles and, and asking him advice and perspective on what it means to lead a church in the States. And, and he gave us advice which I will never, ever forget. And he said to us, he said, Stephen Debs, he said, uh, the church that you lead will not meet, will most likely not meet in the best facility in all of the city. And he said, your your worship is most likely not going to be the best in the city, although I beg to to differ on that one. He he, he says, you are not going to be the best preacher in the city. He said, but he says this, he says, if you, I want to get this right, he says, he said, if you can commit to loving God's people, and loving God to the point of doing exactly what he says, then your church will be a success from heaven's perspective. I want to read that again. If you can commit to loving God's people and loving him to the point of doing whatever he says, then the church that you lead will be a success from heaven's perspective. And I want to say, if there is one thing that I desire more than anything about which Anthem Church is known, is our desire that we are known and will be remembered as a people who love God so much that we're willing to do what he says, even if it doesn't make sense. I'm not talking about quitting your job 
to, you know, tomorrow and packing your things up and moving to the slums of Johannesburg to go and serve God there. Although if God were to tell you that, I would say, yes, absolutely, let's do what God says. There are, there are things in God's word that speak about you know, working uh, uh, God's word out with wisdom and accountability and, and in the context of relationship. But more specifically, what I'm speaking about is making a meal for your neighbor because Jesus told you. I'm speaking about praying for a work colleague who is sick because Jesus told you. I'm speaking about sharing a prophetic word at your anthem anatomy group because, in order to encourage them because Jesus told you. I'm speaking about sharing the gospel with, with a friend or a neighbor because Jesus told you, and so on and so on. I'm talking about the, the privilege that we have as sons and daughters of the Father to hear his voice and the desire that God would place within us to do exactly what he says, even if it doesn't make sense. You're probably thinking, how? How, how on earth do we uh, know that what I'm hearing is actually from God? And we've, we've taught on this many times before. I think it was last year where we actually did a series called Hearing God's Voice. And we spoke about how God speaks to us and what do we do with the things God says. But again, as we are refocusing on important things at the start of this year, I want to say, how do we know what Jesus is saying? And my simple answer to that question is this. And I want to take a few moments just to unpack this. How do we know what Jesus is saying to us? Get to know Jesus. Get to know Jesus. This is an incredibly simple sermon. It really is. Do whatever he tells you. Get to know Jesus so you know that it's him who's saying it. Let's turn to Luke chapter 24 if we can. Luke chapter 24 tells the story of two of Jesus' disciples that are walking the seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus right after the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. And they were discouraged, they were disheartened because they um, hadn't seen the reality of Jesus' resurrection. They thought that he had died and hadn't been raised from the dead as promised. And, and, and as they begin this journey, Jesus joins them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus asks them, what are you talking about? And in verse 19, they say, uh, Luke 24 verse 19, uh, what are you talking about? And they said, about Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. A few verses down, but they crucified him. And we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, and then a few verses down from that, some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it just as the woman had said. It was found to be empty, but they did not see Jesus. Again, if it was us in Jesus' shoes, just like at the wedding in Cana, if it was us in Jesus' shoes, if it was us who had just been raised from the dead miraculously, think about what we would have done. If someone didn't recognize the fact that we had just been raised from the dead, we would have taken them by the shirt collar and gone, it's me, you idiots. Look. But Jesus is not concerned by the fact that they didn't recognize him physically. He's very concerned, though, that they didn't recognize him through the scriptures that pointed to the reality of his death and resurrection. And so in verse 27, it says, over the next few hours, as they walked that seven-mile journey, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The question that we often ask ourselves or ask of God when we are reading the Bible, if you are spending time with God and you crack open your Bible and you spend time reading it, the question that we've all been taught to ask as we are reading the Bible is, what is God saying to me? 
And that's a good question. It's an absolutely necessary question because there needs to be faith and expectation in our hearts for God's word to speak to us. But I want to suggest that the, when, when, when that is the only question and when that is the primary question that we ask, what is God saying to me, then the way that we tend to read Scripture is that the, that the goal of the Bible is to speak life lessons to me. So for example, when we read First uh, Samuel chapter 1 and we read about David and Goliath, if we're asking the question, what is God saying to me, we might take the life lesson from that that we are called to be brave like David. Or maybe in Genesis chapter 3, when we read the accounts of the snake tempting Adam and Eve to question the word of God, when we read that, the life lesson that we might take from that is when the devil challenges us to question God's word, we need to say to him, absolutely no. Or maybe a more obscure example when we read the story of Joseph. Maybe the life lesson that we take from that if, is if you bully a person who dresses eccentrically, they might become president one day and then you might regret it. So that might be the life lesson that we take from, from, from that. There are, there are different life lessons. They are all good things that we, that we learn from the Bible. But I want to suggest that that's not the primary way that we are called to read the Bible. Let me give you an illustration. There are people here, there are couples here in this room I have the privilege of being photographed and in their living rooms or different parts of their house. And there are people around the country who, who my photograph is in their house, not because I'm anything special, but purely because I had the privilege of officiating at their wedding. And so when that moment came where I said, uh, you may kiss your bride to the bridegroom and the couple oblige and the photographer jumps out and he takes the photograph, there I am, standing in the background as the, two as, as the couple come together for their first kiss as a, as a married couple. Am I the centerpiece of that photograph and just the couple, you know, dressed in white and in a suit are photobombing me? Absolutely not. The photograph is not about me. The photograph is about a lover and his beloved. And I just happen to be there. And I want to say, friends, that's the same way that we should read the Bible. The Bible is about a lover and his beloved, the people of God. And by grace, you and I just happen to be included in that. And that's how we should read the Bible. So what I want to put to you is when we come to reading God's word, we shouldn't just be saying, what is God saying to me? But we should be asking the question, what is God saying to me about Jesus? And so when we read 1 Samuel and the story of David and Goliath, we then begin to realize that David is a picture of Jesus who is the giant killer and sets us free from the giant who tries to destroy us. And as the people of God, we walk into the freedom that Jesus achieved for us. When we read uh, you know, Genesis chapter 3, we realize that Jesus is the snake crusher who destroys the one and judges sin and death and sickness and enables us to walk into victory and freedom. But he's also the ark in which we hide from the storms of life that are out to get us. And he's also Jacob's ladder that gives us access into the presence of God. And he's also, just like Isaac, the son of promise and the provision of God of the sacrifice on the mountain of God's provision and so on and so on. I wrote this down. When we read the Bible through the lens of what is God saying to me about Jesus, we first and foremost get to know him. And then we soon realize that the Bible is not a collection of good moral stories, but the revelation of God who is faithful and good and powerful and the one whose promises always come to pass despite the shortcomings and sin of his people. And then, 
Because we know that, because, because we know that, we begin to learn how he views us and how he views the situations that we find ourselves in and how he views the world around us and what he wants to do about it in and through us. Both questions get answered. And then, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, our hearts begin to burn within us as he talks and opens up the scriptures. I want to encourage you this year, when you open the word of God, ask God the question, God, what are you wanting to say to me about Jesus? What are you wanting to teach me about Jesus? And a little suggestion, if you've never done this before, do yourself a favor, buy yourself the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a kid's Bible. It's don't, don't let that fool you. Buy yourself the Jesus Storybook Bible. Read it through and you'll discover how Jesus is revealed so beautifully in some of the passages of Scripture that we, that, that we sometimes, that we know and often overlook. I want to say that maybe even as I'm sharing this, maybe the devil is beginning to condemn or attack some of you with doubt and fear. Maybe you thinking in your heart, or maybe you're listening to the voice of the devil saying, you don't read the Bible enough. Or you don't read the Bible at all. How could you ever possibly come to know Jesus this way? And I want to say, friends, the beautiful thing about Luke 24 is that primarily Jesus wasn't doing a Bible study with his disciples. Jesus was spending time with his disciples. It started off with a seven-mile walk, which is probably going to take, what, two and a half hours or three hours? Jesus walking with his disciples. I love that picture. I love doing that even today. I, I, I spend a lot of time during the week, even this morning. I bundled up nice and warm, and I went out for a 45-minute walk to spend time with Jesus. And as, as Jesus was walking with his disciples, he was explaining and opening up the scriptures. You know, this, this, is, how I was, this is how I appeared here. And, and if you read this text, this is how I appeared here, and so on and so forth. But most beautifully, it wasn't just a Bible study. Jesus came into their home. And he ate with them, and he drank with them, and he broke bread with them. And it's in that place of fellowship that their eyes were opened, and they realized who Jesus is. Friends, it's not about a Bible study. It's not about the rush to try and understand where Jesus is in the Scriptures. It's about spending time with him and asking him to speak to you. What can I do differently? What can you do differently this year to learn to live from heaven's perspective? Get to know who he is so that you can do whatever he tells you, even if it doesn't make sense. I want to land with just one last story from Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14 is a passage which tells the, uh, the, the account of, of Jesus' disciples being in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and a storm hits the Sea of, hits the sea of Galilee, and they are petrified and afraid, and Jesus begins to walk to them on the waves. And just like it happens every single time, not only to the disciples, but to us as well, in a moment of discouragement, in a moment of fear, in a moment of doubt, we actually don't recognize Jesus when he comes to us. But then beautifully, Jesus says these words. When Jesus speaks, when Jesus declares, take courage, it is me, it is I. Don't be afraid. At the moment that Jesus speaks, at the moment his word comes, revelation follows and faith is released and their eyes are open to recognize that Jesus is coming to them. Faith and with it revelation comes by hearing the word of God. 
And I love Peter's response. Immediately on hearing the word of God, Peter shouts out, he says, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come. Sometimes I think we can read that as Peter standing back on the boat with his arms folded. Lord, if it's you, you tell me to come. Like he's a cynic, but that's not Peter's heart. Peter's caught up in the excitement of the moment of seeing Jesus and he shouts out, Lord, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. And Jesus says, Peter was at the wedding in Cana. Peter heard Mary say, do whatever he tells you to, even if it doesn't make sense. And in that moment, Peter does the most remarkable thing. He climbs out the boat and he begins to walk on water. By faith and in obedience to what Jesus told him, Peter climbs out the boat and takes the risk to begin to walk on water. Look at verse 30 though. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? If you're anything like me, you probably read or you tend to read those words that Jesus said with an angry voice. And I've challenged myself, why so often when we read what Jesus or God says, do we always add an angry voice to it? Jesus was not angry with Peter. And perhaps even when we read that, we think that Jesus kind of rescued Peter and put him around his arm like we all taught when we did a kind of eighth grade life-saving. And then Jesus kind of swam back to the boat like this. That's not how it went down. Jesus went to Peter, reached down, took him by the hand, picked him up. And then together... They walked back on the water together. The Greek doesn't say this, but I can just imagine Jesus doing like, hey, Peter, isn't this crazy? Like, we're, we're walking on water together. Don't worry, I've, I've, I've got you. It feels strange, hey? Hey, hey, Peter, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? You didn't need to doubt. You didn't need to be of little faith because I've got you. And I can just imagine that story living with Peter for the rest of his life. Because he learned two things in the moment. He learned that what Jesus wants is for us to do the very thing he tells us to do, even if it doesn't make sense. And when we do it and we take the risk and we step out and we potentially look foolish, Jesus is there to pick us up even when we start to sink. He's good and faithful. That's how the supernatural is released in our lives and into the city around us. So what can we do differently this year? to live from heaven's perspective. Get to know who Jesus is so that you can do whatever he tells you, even when it doesn't make sense. Can I get the worship team up, Aiden? Do you mind? We've got a few moments left and I would love for us to do nothing more than just to wait on God for a moment. But I want us just to take a few moments, four or five minutes, we've got a little bit of time, just to wait on God. Close our eyes, perhaps. Get into a place where you're free from distraction. And let's just listen to the Lord. Lean into his presence and begin to ask him what he wants to do. Holy Spirit, won't you move among us this morning? Holy Spirit, we, we wanna be intentional about waiting on you. Come, Lord. 
come, Lord. We pray that you would release your refreshing, that you would speak peace over us. For those of us in storms at the moment, Jesus, in this place, would you declare, I am, it is me, it is me. Take courage, do not fear. Thanks again for listening. To stay up to date, follow at Anthem Church Chicago and visit us anthemforall.org. Anthem Church, all of Jesus for everyone.